This is a special Uncommon Sense podcast for 3 FM with Amy Mullins. The interview you're about to hear is with Nick Horn, the son of the late, great Donald Horn. Donald Horn was a public intellectual in Australia and is also famously known as the author of The Lucky Country. Nick joined me to talk about a new book he's put together called Donald Horn Selected Writings and it's out through La Trobe University Press. You are listening to 3RRFM with Amy Mullins. This is Uncommon Sense. And as I've promised, uh, we have Nick Horn from uh, Sydney. He's up in Sydney, dialed in um, to talk about his late father, Donald Horn, and the book that he's put together, uh, which is called Donald Horn Selected Writings. And it's out through La Trobe University Press, uh, which is uh, in conjunction with Black Ink, uh, which is a Melbourne based publishing company. And uh, I'm really excited to chat about this uh, book because it brings together. Um, a beautiful uh, a range of, of writings from Donald, who um, many of you may know um, his most well-known work, um, The Lucky Country, which was a, a book that he wrote. But uh, there's so much more in this, including um, speeches and excerpts and parts of essays that he wrote for Quadrant. Um, and yeah, he's such a multi-talented man. So I'm very excited now to welcome uh, Nick Horn to the line. Hi, Nick. Yeah, morning, Amy, and, and what a what a terrific intro. Thanks morning. for Morning. That. No, that's my pleasure because um it just reading your uh the, the book that you've put together and it's masterfully edited, I've got to say, often that's an underrated skill. Um but it's certainly just brought to the fore to me uh something that's really missing nowadays is this uh, not only wit and sharp, incisive um, yeah. you know, insights, but also just the ability to cut through in such yep. a, a... I mean, it's not simplistic, but it's just so well articulated in, in a very clear fashion. And I want to start out with um, your father, Donald the Man, because I think that will really open up um, some of the uniqueness of his writing, I guess, and then we can move into some of the, the chapters or the sections of the book that really highlight that. But first of all, as, um, you know, the son of, of Donald Horn, um, you you write in your introduction, you used to call him D. That's um, right, yeah. First it was Daddy, and then Daddy was um, was too immature, so it became D. D. That's really, really lovely. Um, and so, you know, growing up with um, Donald and what was your experience of him as a person and does does his personality, is is what is shown in his writing really come through in the way he was with you and as a father? Yeah, I think so. I think what you what you read and, and what you see is, is what you get with him. Um, there was, there was um, no real difference between the sort of public and private person. Uh, that's all true. Um, you know, of course, he was... Um, terrifically knowledgeable person so so a, sort of a, a great resource to have around um, and you know of course as a father um, someone whom I, I loved um, so yeah all of all of those sort of normal father son type things were going on but mm. sort of Donald also had um, this this public role um, uh, you know of course which we were, we were all uh, sort of supportive of and proud of 
absolutely an immense public role um, and you you talk about him being very knowledgeable and in one of the first pieces in this book he talks about the importance of school and uh, and the pursuit of knowledge which really seems like something that may in Australian culture not necessarily be widely welcomed uh, and I wonder if his pursuit of knowledge and real public engagement um, was kind of bucking a bit of a trend. I mean the, as he, he writes in this book there are a lot of so-called public intellectuals and um, social theorists in Australia but he I think to me was a true public intellectual and, and pursued knowledge not as an end in itself, but as a way of um, of doing what was necessary, of saying what was needed, whether it was popular or unpopular. I mean, is that something that you particularly wanted to bring out in this book? And what, what are the kind of um, areas that you felt he really um, led on? Yeah, um, well, I, I, didn't want, I didn't want to frame the book um, in a way that people will, will think this is this is what it's all about. You know, I wanted that the writing is clear enough um, and readable enough um, and smart enough, um, sort of, to be appreciated without a lot of um, comments. So people people can read it and they can they can make their own judgments about it. But yeah, you're spot on about um, about the intelligence and the, the cutting through. And of course, he grew up in an, in an older Australia, um, also during the Depression where there were lots of, you know, great things about Australia, um, sort of, you know, uh, a, a belief in the fair go, doing the right thing, love a family, all that sort of stuff. But there wasn't a great respect for um, learning, for intelligence. You know, sometimes you had to pretend to be more stupid than, um, than you were. You know, a lot of energy was wasted on pretending to be more stupid than you were. So he, he, he kind of bridges the gap between... The older Australia and um, and sort of an Australia where um, intelligence is not seen as a crime, mm. you know, and and a, an intelligence that can cut through is not seen as a crime. Absolutely, that's um, beautifully put. He he seemed like he did describe that his childhood in one um, in one part. I'm just trying to find the name. I think it was the education of young Donald, yep, um, yep. and and that was really illuminating for me. To it, it gave a real flavour and sense of what life was truly like in in that time yep. in the 1930s. And it it did bring a bit of not that I was around then, but there was a lot of nostalgia for some of what he was talking about. Um, his parents, which would be your grand parents and you're yeah, playing yeah. tennis in an afternoon yeah, and yeah, yeah, yeah. it was just it seemed like life uh was quite different back then and yeah, well, yeah. no tv no social media yeah exactly so i guess human relationships um you know were naturally a lot more at the fore and certainly um you know between parents perhaps as well uh, and children sorry so I mean, let's talk about um, Donald and his progression through his life because also you say, as well as uh, Glyn Davis in his um, forward uh, essay, he, he talks about, I guess, the evolution of Donald Horn and his how he's evolved, um, how his views evolved and that he wasn't afraid to change his position when, you know, he had... Uh, found other evidence or had developed his own yeah. thinking around some th- some key areas. So I just wanted, if you could, to talk about, um, you know, just across the years, how Donald Horn, yeah. the intellectual and just the, the man himself did evolve. 
Yeah, well, it's um, it's an interesting question, and um, and first of all, I'd say there was there was a well-established Donald sort of by the time he was seven. You know, people say, "Give me the person at seven, and, and, and give me the, the or the person at seven, and, and then I'll show you the the adult." Yeah, um, and that was that was true with Donald. He he, he grew up in a kind of an idyllic, um, loving setting in 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 rural New South Wales. Um, loving parents, a father who'd um, sort of worked his way out of the, out of the coal pits of, of the Hunter Valley um, and, and become a school teacher, uh, and inbred in or encouraged encouraged in Donald um, sort of innate love of learning. And you talk about uh, before you said um, how he he's not just a question of of sort of um, learning for its own sake, but also of applying that learning to sort of social ends. And yes, he was that second part, but he, he was also the first part. He loved, he loved learning for its own sake. He loved reading. You know, he could, he, could, um, he, could, he could go to a movie and just enjoy the movie for itself. So it was a, a combination of, of appreciating uh, sort of knowledge for its own sake, but then also applying, applying that to perhaps social ends. And of course, whether that application to social ends is is successful or not is, in a sense, kind of beyond your control. But um, as far as progressing intellectually goes, yeah, he had a, a big progression there. He um, at high school he was kind of left wing Labor, and then went to university and um, tried a few hats on on the on the left, and then settled on anarchism. <laughs> yeah, and, yes. and then and became a bit disillusioned with it all. And became um, not not so much conservative as anti-progressive, and he put the progressive in inverted commas because these silly progressives he saw it didn't understand that you can't you can change the world, but you can't understand how change in the world um, will eventuate. You, you might go in with good intentions, but it doesn't mean you're going to get good results. So he was in this kind of um, this period of, of anti anti-progressivism. In, in inverted commas for a while and then he um he started editing a journal called the observer and this this gave him a forum to um sort of think about australia to to, to write intelligently about australia and who knows perhaps to influence mm. um, ideas and then of course he goes to the bulletin he writes lucky country and sort of things take off and uh he sort of if you want to complete the um political evolution he he abandons um the moniker of, of, of right wing um sort of in about nineteen seventy and and doesn't necessarily embrace the left though he, he voted um Labour uh, from seventy two until until his death but he was never he was never um a great fan of, of politicians. Mm. Um and when when he'd fight, you know he'd he, he, It'd be like he like was cleaning his teeth. You know, you, you go and vote and you clean your teeth. It was the same kind of <laughs> commitment. Yeah, yeah. I, I, that's really interesting. Um, well, I guess also interesting that he, he started voting Labor at, at 1972 seems to be also a bit of an interesting um, point in time with uh, Gough Whitlam being around and um, certainly I'm not sure. What did he think about uh, Whitlam in particular? Um. Well, he he thought Whitlam's um, broad vision. You know, he thought he thought the modernisation of Australia um, 
was was something worth supporting. And so he was um, he was he was a a, a fan of Goff, um, not not a not a an apostle or anything like that. Because it, one of the one of the things about Donald was that he grew up thinking that none of the, the buggers who go into politics were much good, and that that kind of stayed with him. Um, that kind of scepticism stayed with him. So, but yeah, he was uh, he liked off, yeah, no doubt. Yeah, because he talks about in his early years he wasn't sure what he wanted to do, and um, he'd, he'd often say, "Oh, maybe I'll go into the law, or um, you know, into Parliament." And that was obviously a fleeting idea. <laughs> but uh, he is a very talented writer, um, and I think that's one of the joys, as you said. It's uh, although it's intelligent, it's very accessible. Um, it's not seeking to speak above people. It's truly engaging uh, yeah. with anyone and everyone. And I think that's it, that really comes through strongly. Um, and I want to read out um, the the first excerpt uh, from Glyn Davis's uh, essay here because it's probably what people are most familiar with, and it will um, remind everyone as to I guess uh, part of Donald's contribution, which is just lingers on, but obviously um, can be read into in a range of ways. So I'll, I'll read it out. Australia is a lucky country run mainly by second rate people who share its luck. It lives on other people's ideas and, although its ordinary people are adaptable, most of its leaders in all fields so lack curiosity about the events that surround them that they are often taken by surprise. Now, if that isn't the most universal description of Australia, <laughs> I don't know what is. Obviously, it was part of a time, though, and a, a certain context. So, to me and and to you, I'd like to, to talk about that contribution and that book because it was um, a significant uh, moment for him. What um, what did you take away from the lucky country? And also, you know, you we've it says in this book that um, it, it can often be. I guess too reductive and and you pull out that excerpt and it doesn't necessarily represent all of what Donald was talking about in regard to Australia being a lucky country. So I know means exactly. Yeah. So to you, to you and to Donald, what was he really um, seeking to say with the lucky country? Well, the first, I suppose, the first point is that um, there's no overall theme in the book. There's lots of. Um, he, he described it as a, a sort of a, um, a series of essays with, with no with no continual theme. So, so the lucky the lucky country idea doesn't cover the whole thing, but it's kind of morphed <laughs> into a place where it does cover the whole thing. And and the original lucky country idea was uh, we couldn't rely on luck on question of where we lived, and with um, it was worried about China and communism. So. Um, being in Asia had strategic problems, but also it, it, it had potentialities. Um, you know, we should be aware of where we're living um, in the world and take advantage of it. And the other, the other um, question where we couldn't rely on luck was on the question of economic management. You know, the world didn't owe us a living, all that sort of stuff. And then, of course, you get the, the mining boom in the, in the late 60s, and it, it seems that, no... Uh, we can rely on luck, you know. Mm. Um, and but then, as, as it seemed, of course, that was that was sort of, sort of fool's gold. Um, so, so yeah, you have you have the idea of the lucky country covering those two specific um, areas in Australia, but it's kind of morphed. The phrases has sort of morphed with the rest of the book. So it it's kind of describing, I think, you know, a place where 
we can't rely on, on being dumb. You know, we have to be smart. We have to recognise that there's more than one way of being an Australian. Um, you know, it's not lucky for everybody, all those sorts of things. Mm. Yeah, and he does describe uh, Australia and um, in the excerpt in the book, um, which is from the first chapter, he gives a snapshot of Australia in the 1960s and it is quite a a beautiful way of talking about it um, and very uh, illuminating in kind of a narrative sense, I guess. He talks about, you know, taxi drivers often prefer their passengers to sit with them in the front seat and sometimes tip them the small change. A person who doesn't like ordinary people to think they are as good as he is or to enjoy yeah. some of the things he enjoys himself will not like yeah. Australia. Yeah. yeah, as much as you, as much as the, the lucky country, the book sort of had, had um, strong criticisms of the place, mm. you, can, you can read it as a, a sort of a, um, you know, a trip into, into what the place seems at the time, you know, good and bad. Yeah, and it's it, a realistic it, it, homage, perhaps. Sorry, what, what? A realistic, a realistic homage. homage. Yeah, well, and it's, you can read The Lucky Country and you think this is a lot of simplistic generalisation mm. and, and people sometimes do that and then go back to it and, and think, oh, no, OK, he's, he's, he's writing about the way the place seems. Yeah. You know, he, he, he was a big fan of Gramsci and Gramsci had um, the idea of common sense as a, a kind of um, a not common sense um, in the way that we use it, but a kind of a, a, um, a way of of describing sort of generally accepted wisdoms. And a lucky country is, is um, a description of the common sense of Australia in the 60s. Mm. And this is, this is before he read Gramsci. So you can see why he is so warmed to, to Gramsci. Absolutely, absolutely. And, uh, and I want to talk about um, some of the kind of points that he makes. One I found particularly interesting was around... Um, planning and the difficulty of planning and how um, you know politicians and others seek to plan for things and it, it sometimes limits their vision and ability to to do the right thing in a certain situation I mean that was particularly um, you know poignant for me in terms of a range of issues that we currently face uh, yeah. what what was he really on about there well it changed a bit um, to begin with he was worried um, that any planning um, was um, could rationally be, rationally be achieved in the, to achieve the ends that you wanted to um, to achieve, and so he was a bit he was anti-planning for a while, and then um, he sort of when he sort of became engaged again um, with the observer, he thought, oh well, um, yes, it might be perhaps we don't get the the um, the, the ends that we were going to achieve, but 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 not doing anything might also um, bring us um, sort of bad stuff. So so he embraced some sort of attempt at rational policy, um, and whether or not, of course, that was successful was, in, in a sense, beyond his control, or beyond mm. planner's control. Mm. And he also, there's an interesting section on ambition, which is from a, an unpublished paper, um, which you, you write was pro- probably delivered in Sydney in 1959. Um, January 1960, I've since found. Oh, right, okay, there you go. So, close, yeah. close. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, from 1960, and... He talks about ambition and then there's an excerpt about excitement. And I, I've booked yeah. noted many um, sections in here, so it's going to be difficult to pull out one that's particularly um, great because they all are. But uh, he talks about the ambitious person and that there are many kinds of ambition and that it's yeah. also 
really, um, as he says, a dirty word. Yeah. Uh, and that he never really received any sane, healthy, ambition, instruction. And he puts those in capital letters, ambition, instruction. Yeah. I mean, that's just a, a really interesting look at Australian society, I'm guessing. Yeah. It was really yeah. a commentary upon. Could you yeah. share more about that particular piece? Yeah. Um, well, because after after he wrote that, he, he then wrote his his, um, his autobiography, and he, he sort of abandoned that kind of psychological um, way of at things. But it, it stayed with him, I think. And the idea um, the idea of excitement and enthusiasm was one that was very much a hallmark of his his makeup, um, his ambition, if you want. Um, you know, he was a very enthusiastic person, and. And yes, he had his setbacks, but then he'd sort of get back up, partly because he was interested in things anyway, also because he wanted to, um, you know, hopefully um, interest other people in those things. Um, yeah, because uh, he was, of course, he was writing that piece. Um, he'd been reading, because he did a lot of book reviews for The Observer, mm. and he'd been reading um, about uh, great people, great in the of time great person of the of the year and he references and, Stalin and Hitler yeah, yeah, yeah. so so people who um, have obviously had ambition mm. yeah but it's it's an interesting piece because you know to what extent when you when you do stuff are you doing it for the good of the world or are you doing it for your own personal um, sort of satisfaction mm. and even if you're doing it for your own personal satisfaction can you therefore can you then also sort of hook it into something that's, that's doing good for the world? Absolutely. And that it draws out some of the uncertainty in life. Um, he talks about... Uh, I'll read a, a section that I found particularly interesting and I think it applies to, to many, is that uh, he says, ambitions are closely connected to fantasy structures. <laughs> when the fluke opportunity means that the wrong ambition wins, this yeah. does not necessarily tell one much about the person concerned. Successful yeah. men, and I would say, obviously, he would also mean women. This uh, is in a pre-feminist, uh, sexist language um, yeah. written. Exactly. Um, So successful men and women in their 40s are often characterised by a deep sense of failure and frustration which puzzles them in their 20s, puzzles others of of a similar, you know, type in their 20s. The explanation often is that the wrong ambition won and they don't know what to do about it. I found that really interesting because he also then applied that to Hitler in a sense and said, imagine if he'd just been an architect. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean... (laughs) Um, you know, it's, there's, there's a lot of chance that goes on in, in the world, isn't it? Um, things, things don't have to have come out the way that they did. Indeed, and I just think that he frames it in a way that just I have not come across, I guess, in, in the language well, he uses and the frameworks he's using there. Yeah. Is that his philosophical um, background? That was, well, that particular, what you just, it was something actually applied to him because he was, um, before he moved into the Observer, so he would have been 20, 36 when he started working on The Observer, um, he was successful in the sense that he was the editor of um, crappy, um, let it be said, a crappy uh, sort of easy reading type um, newspaper. So he was successful. I mean, he, he mm. wasn't rich or anything. He, he never had any money at that stage. But he was. He, he could be seen as successful. I think yet, you said he was misemployed, was it? <laughs> yeah, 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 that's right. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah that's... Yeah, he was intellectually misemployed. Mm. Yeah. And, um, and of course, the, in a sense, the, 
because you know you, you, when you when you're stuck with a task, you want to you want to do it properly. So he, there were times in that in that sort of interregnum between um, university and, and becoming a um, sort of an intelligent critic in Australia, he just threw himself into things, pig farming, you know, briefly, uh, sort of easy reading newspapers. Um, so there was that enthusiasm, mm. but it didn't have that kind of, if you want, social awareness. Mm. Well, it's, he seems like uh, one of those people who, um, if you want to do something, you need to do it properly. <laughs> uh, yes and no. Yeah. Um, he, he, yes and no. He, um, you, you, you don't want the perfect to get in the way of the possible. So no. Particularly when he was writing, he would, would get stuff down on paper. Um, and he was a, he described himself as a dirty writer. So mm. you know, just get something down on paper and, and perfection can wait for the next draft. Yes, and interestingly, when when you talked about that, he said you said he often would throw out tens of thousands of words, and yes. and his uh, his wife at the time um, also assisted in editing as well, which is uh, his wife for for a long time. That yeah, was my yep. second yeah, wife was, was it? Um, sorry, was that his second wife? That was his second wife. So yeah. my family, my mother, yeah, they yeah. married in in 1960 and and um, stayed married. Um, until Donald died in 2005. And what kind of relationship was that in, in the writing sense? Yeah, um, we had a lot, a lot of time to discuss this, but, but I'll, 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 I'll brief it up. Yeah. I'll make it brief. Yeah. Um, I wouldn't say it was of the um, sort of um, Sartre de Beauvoir but, uh, you know, sort of level. Mm. Donald was, was very self-confident and, and knew, what he, knew what he thought and and was sort of um, self-supporting in some ways. So, so it wasn't. It wasn't. Um, they weren't, in a sense, equals in that partnership. Their, their relationship was was was. Um, they got married in sixty in, in nineteen sixty. So it was, in some sense, pre. Well, it was a pre-feminist one. It. Um, the family stopped working uh, when they got married. Uh, in a paid sense, but um, sort of. Uh, you know, she, she became very much an integral part of Donald's sort of editorial. Um, uh, he, she, and also, of course, Mafami did, did, did do a bit of freelance editing and, and reviewing, so it wasn't as if she wasn't doing some stuff. But, but she was, it, was a, it was a relationship that, that had pre-feminist characteristics, but not, not in a... Um, it's so complex describing um, different relationships, isn't it? Mm, it is. It was not, not in a, in a sense that she was unhappy with. She had a, a great indomitability about her, which was very necessary for Donald. Donald was a very strong character um, and needed, needed an indomitable woman. Donald, of course, um, was encouraging of women generally, who, who associates he had at university. Um, he had colleagues, female colleagues, um, who, who, who loved him. And, and, and whom he encouraged, and, and in journalism as well. So, mm. so his, his scorecard, if you want, um, on, the, on the feminist issue is, is a, a complex one. Mm. Well, it was also a time, um, obviously, it was right at the point when things were starting to change, so it's difficult to be, you know, anything but time, a product yeah. of your time, yeah. Because well, Jermaine Greer wrote her book uh, six years after The Lucky Country and the feminist historians... We're a decade after the lucky country, so... Exactly. So anyway, yeah, 
Yeah, radical feminisms uh, in the 70s and, and mid-70s. Um, and I just want to touch on, um, finally, one of the sections, um, it's Chapter 12, which is Money Made Us, and he talks about uh, Australia's economic culture and yeah. uh, and the secular faith of growth. And um, the first, the first, I guess, sentence here is quite revealing of, of the broader issue, which is that he says, faith in economic growth was perhaps the most widespread secular faith in the world after the Second World War, affecting communist and third world countries, as well as the capitalist industrialised countries. And yeah. he talks about these new statistical measurements such as gross national product and and national, well, national income was the, the precursor to that. I mean, in that particular chapter and his his broader thinking on economics and the way that we we view growth what yep. what do you think um, he contributed in that sense to to the economic discussion and the culture that we have around growth because it still persists today yeah well yeah because um, he, he he came from a, a position um, up until up until the the, the stagflation of the 70s where he, he, he used, his language was that of, 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 the, of the economic primer, you know. One of, and, and the lucky country was written at this time, so the lucky country was, um, we, we couldn't rely on luck to maintain our, our economic growth. So he, he came from a, you know, a sort of, a, if you want, an orthodox um, economic sort of background. But then, sort of the 70s, it seems like nothing's working. So, so he... He modifies his thinking, um, and he, he he got stuck into economic fundamentalism, um, you know, and a, and a feeling that society is just an economy, and not you know not not the people that make up the economy. So mm. so, so 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 treasurers are yes concerned with the welfare, hopefully, of their people, but they're also concerned with with statistics. So if you can put one little um, group of numbers into a previous quarter or whatever, then that's as good as, as putting people to work, although it's not. Mm. So, so he, was, he was suspicious of, of, um, of, of economic fundamentalism, yeah. Yeah, and, and the funny part about it is that his last line is um, also quite revealing. He says, it may simply have been an oddity of history that for a while we could make a profit out of an economist, which yeah, he's talking yeah. there about uh, Keynes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm pretty sure we're still making profits out of economists perhaps, but um, yeah. it's, it's really amazing to see how that, that economic thinking does pervade our yeah. discussion around really social issues that uh, need a lot more depth and nuance than just statistics. Yeah. I mean, he, he also said that econ economics was, was too important to be left to economists. To, to <laughs> economists. And, and, and behavioural economics, um, which has sort of evolved since he died, mm. um, would be something that he might well have um, hitched you know, his ride with. Exactly. And uh, and just finally, I would be remiss of me to not mention his contribution in the arts, in particular being chair of the um, Australia Council for the Arts. Yeah. I mean, that was... He's still spoken of in a... a a really highly regarded way in terms of the way he prosecuted that role as chair. Um, when you were observing him and and his role there, what did what struck you about him and and the way that he operated? Yeah, yeah, because he was never politically tribal. Um, he never he never um, 
was a was a um, sort of a, a member of a political tribe. But I think with the arts, and I think particular in particular with his his um, engagement with the arts community from 1980, 1985, um, he had a six-year term as the chairman of the Australia Council. I think he he had a, a tribal affiliation to the arts community. He was his role as, as the chairman was. I mean, there's, there's a certain amount of administration you have to do, um, chairing boards and that sort of stuff. But it was as an ideas person. So he he was out on the stump, um, uh, sort of prosecuting the arts. You know, whether whether or not the, the way you prosecute things has any effect, you don't know. But but uh, he was he saw he saw he saw the arts as important to uh, if you want economic viability. You know, the innovation that's involved in artistic endeavour. Um, is the same kind of thing that if you apply it to the economic culture, um, you know, hopefully good things happen. And that kind of thinking um, was around uh, in the Whitlam era, but it seems to have almost died um, in terms of our politicians' view on the arts nowadays. Um, do you think that uh, that we can revive some uh, some of the, what Donald has been saying about about the arts in this book. Um, he talks about uh, the the people involved in arts discussions and criticism, and um, I wonder if even some of that is still um, operating at the moment. The the way that um, people see uh, the the arts and artists, and yeah. what the artist's true role is is to be focusing on their art rather than um, hypothesising on certain areas. Yeah, um, you know, I mean, there's a lot of artistic endeavour going on, so so it, perhaps it doesn't make its way into the into what he calls the public culture. Yeah, it's a very hard question to answer, isn't it? I mean, I mm. suppose all you can say is, um, um, I mean, it's not it's not just a question of top down, you know, sort of artists eking out their existence, uh, if you want, sort of doing their patriotic duty um, for the country. You know, of course, we um, we all we all hope they do well. Exactly. Um, Nick, I want to thank you so much for um, sharing your experiences of your father as well as the writing in uh, that he's so many different pieces. And as you say, um, you can't put everything in. And, uh, and really, I'm sure it will spark people's interest to look into things further and to seek out more of his work and I know you're also um, doing some research on Donald yourself so uh, I'm guessing people can look out for that uh, in the future um, Well I, I want to put this one out to sea and then I, I want to have a holiday and I want to have a good think and, um, and yeah, you never know Yeah, one day we'll get you back on at some <laughs> point to talk well, about it It's a pleasure talking with you Amy so that would be, that would be a be lovely. Oh, thank you. Thank you very much. Um, I'll let people know that uh, if they're interested, they can seek out this wonderful book, Donald Horn Selected Writings, which is edited by Nick Horn, um, who I've been speaking with, and it's out through La Trobe University Press. Thanks again, Nick, and have a lovely day. Thanks, Amy. Take care. That was Nick Horn, the son of Don- Donald Horn, the late Donald Horn, who is, uh, well, was and still is uh, his work exists and is universal in many ways today and uh, and I highly recommend having a look through this book it's just a delight and uh, you can dip in and out of it because although it has um, some kind of uh, there's definitely method there and structure but it's certainly there for you to to pick out areas of interest and to look into it further so uh, do check it out you've been listening to the uncommon sense podcast Uncommon Sense is a show broadcast on 3RRR FM in Melbourne every Tuesday between 9am and noon.
Thanks for joining me.